If you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab those. We are in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, starting at verse 23. That's the second book in your Bible, so start right at the beginning. You'll see Genesis and then, and then Exodus chapter 2, starting at verse 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. During this long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush, the bush does not burn up. So today we are looking at the life of Moses. Last week, we saw that Moses was very caring and compassionate, and he was also very justice-oriented. It didn't matter the person, uh, their background, their ethnicity, their gender. It didn't matter if they were weaker and they were being harmed by an aggressor, he would step in. Regardless of the circumstances, Moses would step in. And yet, what we also saw is that this Moses, even though he was filled with compassion, even though he was filled with justice, even though he had the right motivation, he did the wrong thing. When he saw a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian slave master, he killed the Egyptian in cold blood, and he hid him in the sand. And on, as a result of that, he was ostracized not only from his Egyptian family, but by his Hebrew family as well, and he goes out into the wilderness, and there he gets married, he gives birth to a son named Gershom, which means sojourner in a foreign land. Even his son is identified with him entering out into the wilderness, and there he is. And the story that we're looking at today is one of those classic examples of a human being who believes in God— but it's not until an encounter like the one we just read that he truly knows God. See, there's a fundamental difference between knowing about God and truly knowing God. And that's what we get to look at today. You know, it's kind of like fire. Who here is looking forward to the Canada Day parade and all the fireworks? Kids, you with me? It's been almost three years, hasn't it, since we've been able to enjoy fireworks here? And so I know I'm looking forward to it. And so one of the questions that I have is, even though Abbotsford and our surrounding cities, they put on a pretty good show when it comes to fireworks, it pales in comparison to the fireworks that we see in Toronto or especially in New York on the 4th of July. So why... Do we as families leave the comfort of our home, our air-conditioned homes? We enter out into the community to watch the fireworks in person. Why do we do that, even though they're vastly inferior to the fireworks in Toronto? Well, 
because fireworks aren't fireworks unless you're close enough to smell them going off. And you watch that tiny little dot flutter into the air, and you know what's about to happen, and still, the boom! It scares you, and it shatters your heart a little bit, and you are so filled with glee. See, it's one thing to know about fireworks. It's another thing altogether to truly experience it in the moment, to have it captivate all of your senses. And in the same way, that's how we see God. After reading through the book of Genesis and now into Exodus, we see that one of the main ways that God describes himself to his people is in the form of fire. We saw this in Genesis chapter 12, in which God reveals himself to Abraham in the, smoke, uh, in, in the form of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. And then again here in Exodus chapter 3, he reveals himself as fire. And then again, two more times before Exodus is finished, God will reveal himself to Moses and to the people of Israel in the form of fire. Why? Why? What do we see within fire that helps us understand who God is? You think of the author of Hebrews who says, Worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So here's one of the things that we know about the characteristics of God outlined in Scripture. The first thing I put in your note sheet. Understanding the character of God, God is unyielding. The big church word we use this is that he is transcendent. He is all-powerful, he is high above us, he is holy, he is mighty, he is a God who is over and above all of the created creatures and things that he has made. And when you look at all the various different objects that God has made, like clay and earth and water, fire is the only thing that cannot be shaped Right? You can take clay, you can take earth, and you can move it around and change it and, and try to interact with it. Water, you can contain it, you can disperse it, you can even take it in, you can drink it. Try doing that with fire. So the thing that we, actually don't try that, just sidebar, don't do that. So one of the things that we see about fire is that it always shapes us. It moves us. It's always the thing that is doing the shaping, the molding, the transforming, the consuming. Always, always, always fire shapes us and not vice versa. And so that's a key element of the character of God that we serve. And also, did you notice that this burning bush, it's not consuming the tree? Why is that important? Why is that little note in there? Well, Julie and I were talking about it this week, and, and what she laid out for me, and I thought this was brilliant, is that typically when we have fire, we need a fuel source in order for it to continue on, right? We need wood, we need gasoline, we need our garbage. Something needs to fuel this fire, and yet, not for God. He needs no such thing. He is transcendent. He is over and above all created things. And so this bush doesn't need to be consumed in order for God to continue in his work. Keep looking at chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now. Now stop right there. 
Every single time you see the word therefore in your Bible or the word now in your Bible, it wants you to look at something that you just previously read. And if you're picking up just with that verse, then you're missing something. It wants us to look back at Moses and to see just how far that he has fallen. Verse 1, now Moses was keeping the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, and we just learned two very important things about Moses in terms of just how far he's fallen. Number one, he's living with his father-in-law. I've done it. Enough said. Number two, he is a shepherd. And one thing that we know about Egyptians is that uh, shepherds are detestable in the Egyptian eyes. How do we know that? Well, we actually learned this in the very first week of this series when we were looking at the book of Genesis. You might remember the time in which all of Joseph's family, including Jacob and all the brothers, they were coming before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's about to say, I want to give you the best of the land. I want you to enter into the, uh, the best of the land. But before that happens, Joseph says, I need to give you some advice before you go into the courts of Pharaoh. Here's what it says, Genesis 46. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation, don't tell him that you're shepherds. You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you'll be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Interesting. All shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. The ESV says shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. So he says, say to Pharaoh, we're not shepherds. We are CEOs of agriculture. We are owners of four-legged creatures. But we are not shepherds. We're not shepherds. So here's Moses, the prince of Egypt, war general, mighty in word and in deed, and the supposed liberator of the people of Israel, and he's out in the wilderness living in his father-in-law's basement as a shepherd. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And yet, look right at me. This is where God finds liberators. This is where God finds liberators. And then we see verses 2 and 3. Look at your Bibles again with me. Chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And you know, while I was reading this, um, I, I looked at the commentaries from the great reformer John Calvin, and he had a very interesting perspective on what Moses is doing here. He says, look at the incredible patience of Moses as he's out in the wilderness. We know um, through Jewish tradition that Moses has been in the wilderness for 40 years. So Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7, the first 40 years of Moses was in Egypt, and he was around 40 when he killed the Egyptian. And then the next 40 years, he's in the wilderness tending sheep. So by the time that he has this encounter, he's about 80 years old. 
And here's what we see, which I find so interesting. John Calvin says, even though this is a riches to rags story, he's still patiently waiting for God to do something in his life, for him to be the liberator of the people of Israel. He says, look at the ways in which he is patiently waiting for God to show up and summon him to active duty at last. And far be it from me to disagree with John Calvin, but that's what I'm going to do. I disagree. I don't think that's what's going on here. Here's what I think is going on. When Moses sees a bush that is not burning up even though it's on fire, he's doing exactly the same thing that most of you would do. I know what I would do. I would say, ooh, fire. Interesting. It's not burning up. Let's go see this strange sight. I remember six months ago, we got a note that there was a black bear that was walking around in our neighborhood. And what did I do? I got in my car and I went looking for it. Or uh, there's a, about four months ago, we heard that there was a fire just up the street. What did I do? I got in my car with my kids. I went looking for it. We're curious, right? We want to go see what's going on. So I don't think Moses is patiently waiting for the Lord. I think he's tending sheep, living with his father-in-law, very sad that he thought he was the great liberator of the people of Israel, but how the mighty have fallen. And when he sees fire, what does he say? Look in your Bible. Ooh, fire. I will see this great sight. Verse 3, why the bush does not burn up. He's curious. But then we see... Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses. Now, I want you to notice two things that are absolutely spectacular within this tiny little verse here in verse 4. Number one, this is the very first time that God speaks in a course of over 400 years. The last time that God spoke was through his servant Joseph. 400 years have transpired, and God has been silent. In fact, the only time in which God is passively mentioned is when uh, the beginning of Exodus says that God favored the two midwives, Shifra and Puah. But he doesn't speak. It just says God's favor was upon them, and they had children of their own. But otherwise, in the midst of this great slavery, as Pharaoh enslaves and beats and mistreats the people of Israel and slaughters their sons, God is nowhere to be found, or so it seems. There's no mention of God. Once upon a time, God spoke and there was. Once upon a time, God revealed himself to Abraham in the form of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. Once upon a time, he revealed himself to Sarah by the oaks of Mam. Once upon a time, he revealed himself to Jacob in the form of incredible visions. And in the same way to Joseph and to Jacob, we see all these iterations in the book of Genesis where God is actively at work speaking to his people. And for the last 400 years, God has been silent. And the people of Israel are crying out, God, where are you? Don't you hear us? Deliver us from our, our bondage. Deliver us from our slavery. Deliver us from our oppression. You are the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. We are your children. Where are you? And he is seemingly nowhere to be found. And we see 
that a collective cry goes out with God's people, where are you? And finally, God speaks in this verse. And then number two, I want you to notice what God says to Moses. He says, Moses, Moses. He uses his name twice. And every time you hear a name being used twice in Scripture, you have to immediately sense that whoever is doing the talking is uh, revealing a, a sense of intimacy and closeness to the person with whom they're talking to. Just a couple examples. One of the examples of this is when Mary and Martha invite Jesus into their home. Jesus is sitting and teaching the disciples, and Mary comes and sits and listens too. But Martha's in the kitchen. She's getting things ready. She comes to Jesus. She says, Jesus, get Mary to help me in the kitchen. And what does he say? With all the tenderness of God in the world, he says, Martha, Martha, what Mary has chosen is better and will not be taken from her. He speaks to her with tenderness. In Exodus chapter 15, Moses is feeling the incredible burden of his leadership, and the people of Israel are ready to stone him. They're sick and tired of Moses as this leader, and Moses cries out to God, and he says, Lord, Lord. Or perhaps the greatest example that we can collectively think of is when Jesus Christ is on the cross, and it says in Scripture that God the Father turned his face away so that Jesus was utterly alone. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so here we see the tenderness and the compassion of the great God that we serve when he says, Moses Moses. So here's the second thing we have to see about the character of God. Number two in your note sheet, God wants you to know him. And the big church word we use for this is the imminence of God. He is close to you. He comes down to you. He hears you. He sees you. He knows you. And so here's, here's what we have to understand about these two things. On the one hand, we, we serve a God who is transcendent. He is powerful. He is unyielding. The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. So he is transcendent. He is above all things. And yet that same God is knowable. That same God looks upon the cries of his people. That same God is tender and, com and compassionate, and he looks upon the iniquity of us all. He looks upon the pain of us all. He hears us. He knows us. Both of those things are happening at exactly the same time. And I want to propose to you that it is absolutely critical that we hold each of these two attributes of God up to the highest level that we can possibly think of. Because here's what happens. If we say that we serve a transcendent God who is high above us, who is holy and magnificent, but he has not come down, then here's what's going to happen. Your life is going to be a lot like Moses's before the burning bush. You're going to know about God. You might even know some of the things that he says. You might believe in him the same way that the demons believe in him, but he hasn't transformed your life. And when you consider the cares of your own life, your concerns, your pain, your aggravation, your joy, any of those things, this transcendent God, you think to yourself, does not care. He does not care. How could he? 
You think of what the psalmist says. Who am I that he is mindful of me? Who am I? A, a created being that God, the creator of the universe, this transcendent God, would think of me, would consider me. And I, I think that might be true of some of us in this room. But by the same token, there might be some of us who say, you know what, I believe wholeheartedly in the imminence of God, a God that who has come down, a God who has stooped to our level, a God who is Emmanuel, God with us, that he took on flesh and he dwelt among us, and yet we downplay the transcendence of God and what happens there. If you have a God who is fully imminent but not transcendent, then here's what's going to happen. There will be no seriousness in your heart about sin, no care or concern about the well-being of others, and you will believe in a God who knows you intimately full well, but then you will begin to treat Scripture not as the rule book of your life, but as a good piece of advice. And God will be made in your own image. He will love what you love, and he will hate what you hate. And God will be more your co consultant, your cosmic consultant, than the Lord of your life. And so what God wants you to see is that he is both transcendent and imminent. He is both unyielding, and he is knowable. Both of these things at exactly the same time. And so it is a Christian who leans into both of these things to understand who God is. Let's keep reading, looking at verse 5. Verse 5 says, when Moses says, here I, uh, verse 4, let's look at verse 4. When the Lord said that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And so when Moses comes over to this burning bush that is not being consumed, what does God say? Does he say, hey, come on in. The weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. Come on in. No, he doesn't say that. He says, stop. The place upon which you are standing is holy ground. If you come any closer, you will die. You will die. So once again, here we see the holiness and the transcendence of God. The Hebrew, literally, we need to read it as God saying, stop. Stop. Don't come any closer. And we see from the latter verse that Moses is scared, and he should be. See, I think oftentimes we read that passage sort of as like a hallmark reading, right? We kind of have like the deep Vader voice, and it says, Take off your sandals. The place upon which you are standing is holy ground. And yet, it is a frightful sound that the Lord makes, which reminds us of the holiness and the otherness and the transcendence of God. And so here's the thing that God says to us when we understand the heart of God. Number one, he says to us, I am holy. I am holy. Now what do we mean when we say that? It means that every individual aspect of who God is is so uniquely glorious that it cannot be fully measured or fully comprehended with the brains that we have. He is holy 
other. This is a fourth dimensional truth that we cannot fully comprehend. It's like a stick man trying to understand what is depth. In the same way, we just don't have the brains to fully comprehend the holiness and the transcendence and the otherness of God. And God says to his people, I am not like Pharaoh who claims, if I say day is night, then it will be written. God says, let me tell you something. That day which comes from the sun, I made that. That night which comes from the, the moon and the stars and the darkness, I made that. Everything that you see around you, I made that. I am the creator of all things. And Moses trembles in fear. Exactly the same way that Abraham fell face down in dread when God appeared in the form of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. In Genesis chapter 12, Moses is filled with fear. But at exactly the same time, in the midst of this, God also says, I am compassionate. I am compassionate. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. Verse 8, so I have come down to rescue them. Circle, highlight, underline. This is a messianic text. This is a text that Jesus himself will allude to. He has come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And yeah, I practiced that. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And God speaks with incredible compassion. I am not a God who sits idly by. I hear their suffering and I know them. The Hebrew word for know is an incredibly intimate word. It is the same word, mind you, that describes the relationship between Adam and Eve before they give birth to their firstborn son, if you're catching my drift. So there's intimacy here. God says, I don't just want to know you with my mind. I want there to be an intimacy between us. For me to know you and for you to know me and for us to be in a covenantal relationship with one another. In the same way that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and God walked together in the cool of the day. God wants that with you. And I just trust that there's someone in this room who needs to hear that. That God wants to know you. God wants a relationship with you. Not because of your gifts. Not because he wants you on his team not because of your beauty or your intellect, but because he loves you. And he wants to know you and for you to know him. And so at this point, Moses is absolutely pumped. He is excited that God will come down and he will rescue the people of Israel from the slave masters in Egypt. He's like, I'm going to grab some popcorn. I'm going to go to the top of a mountain. I'm going to watch everything unfold. God, get him. Yes, I'm excited for this. And then God says, look at your Bibles. So now I will send who? Help me out. What's the word? You. You. 
Moses. I will send you. And Moses is like, what? wait wait a second. You're not going to send me. Like, I'm wanted for murder in Egypt. And I have a speech impediment. And even though other manuscripts say that I'm mighty in word and in deed, I, I don't think I have the words to speak. I, I can't do this. And God says, nope, I'm sending you, buddy. I'm sending you. Verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? In other words, remember, murderer, fled to Midian, living in my father-in-law's basement, shepherding flocks, pagan belief system. You got the wrong guy. I am not special. Who am I? And God says, oh, Moses, you're an incredibly gifted man. Look at all of your skills and your abilities. You're smart. You're successful. I did a Myers-Briggs inventory of you, and you have the 12 habits of a highly influential and respectable person. Of course, Moses, you are the perfect person to be a liberator. Does he say that? No. In fact, he sympathizes when Moses says, who am I? I'm nothing special. He's not corrected. Ouch. He's not corrected. So what's the point? What do we learn from this? God says, you don't have to be. Do you know why? Verse 12, because I am with you. Because I am with you. The longer I've walked with Jesus, the more and more I believe this to be true, that the sign of a healthy individual who knows what God is doing is someone who is deeply devoted to prayer and less devoted to their own gifts and abilities and strengths to get them through. And I just think in our mind, because of our sin nature, the traitor within, the way most of us are wired is to say, I got to be really gifted. I have to grow in my strengths. I need to perform well. I need to push against this and that. And we're always moving and jostling and trying to do the best that we can. And God is saying, stop, be still, and know that I am God. God loves to use the weak to display his strength. Did you hear me? God loves to use the weak to display his strength. And so we need to yield because God is with us. I've given you my resume, Moses. I'm the Lord of the universe. I am the true king. There are no other gods. I am all-powerful, and I have chosen you to deliver my people, not because you're all that. <laughs> Actually, it's in spite of you that I will use you so that all will know that I am Lord and God. That's why he chooses Moses. And Moses says, well, at the very least, could you give me a sign? Could you give me a prophecy? Could you let me know how this is all going to happen? Look at verse 12. The answer is this. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. Ready for it? Here it is. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You shall serve God on this mountain. Now, I don't know about you, but as far as confirmations go, that's not a good one, right? So he's like, give me a sign. I need to see the future. And he says, all right, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to Egypt, and, you know, maybe you'll die because you're wanted for murder there. Maybe not. And you'll go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go, and then you'll bring them back, and then you'll worship me on this mountain. What? That, that's not a prophecy, and so it's kind of like if someone came up to you and they said, hey, could I borrow $50,000? And 
And you said, well, how do I know you're going to pay me back? And their response was, when I pay you back, you'll know. Like, as far as confirmations go, not very helpful, right? And so here's Moses. He's saying, like, That's, that doesn't help. So then he asks a new question. He says, I'm going to have to get some ID. God, what should I call you? And then we read the famous words from verse 14. It says this, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Or another way you can translate this is, I will be who I will be. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And so God's reply is the famous I am statement. The I am has sent you. Now, at this point, Moses must have been a little bit disappointed because all the gods in Egypt had incredible names evoking fire and flood and thunder and power. And here's God. He says, here's my name. I am who I am. What? That's it? So, so what is he trying to convey? What is God communicating to us? Well, here's one of the things that I think we need to take home. Point three in your note sheet. I am all sufficient for you. I am all sufficient for you. See, God, he never puts your face in his hands and says, you can do all this because you're so great, because you're so successful, because you're so beautiful, because you're the sharpest tool in the shed, because you have such an incredible high IQ or EQ. He doesn't say any of that. In fact, God says the opposite. He says, I know you can't do it on your own, but I can and so some of you, you might be in a position right now where you might say something like, God, I'm not good enough. And God says, I am. But God, I'm not successful enough. I am. But God, I'm, I'm just not smart enough. I don't have the right leadership acumen, the right business acumen, the right IQ. I don't know how to lead people. God, what can I do? I'm not strong enough, God. And he says, I am. I am. And that's the test for you. Do you believe it? See, Gateway, God says to us, it's not about how gifted you are or smart you are or successful you are. It's about whether or not you are willing to put your trust in him. That's the question that you have to wrestle with. God is not after your gifts. God is after your obedience. God is after your heart. And so the only question that you have to answer is, am I willing to step out in obedience? That was the only question, ultimately, for Moses. Will you obey or will you stay away? Will you go or will you hide? Will you enter back into Egypt or will you stay in Midian? What will you do? But I'm going with you, Moses. And it's on my strength, it's on my strength that this will happen. There's also an apologetics piece to this. And apologetics is just a fancy word for giving a defense of your faith. When Jesus says, I am who I am, ultimately the statement that he is making is that he is eternal. 
See, everything that you know, every person you've ever met, every tree, every animal, every living thing, and even every non-living thing has a shelf life, doesn't it? Everything you've ever known or will ever know will eventually die, and it has been created by something else. And so you wonder to yourself, what was the first thing? What was the primary cause? What was the primal being? And God says, I am. I am. Everything you know or have ever known is finite, but I am eternal. I existed before everything else. I was, I am, and I will be. And perhaps that explains why years later there are a bunch of religious elites called Pharisees who were arguing with this upstart leader named Jesus, and they even told him very affectionately that he is filled with demons. Kind of a non-starter for an argument, but they said, clearly, you're demon-possessed. And Jesus says, no, I'm not demon-possessed. And then comes this famous line in which they say, who are you? Did you exist before Moses? You're not even 50 years old. And what does he say? He says, before Abraham was born, I am. And then they picked up stones and they stoned him. And later, they nailed him to a cross. Jesus was known for saying things like that. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate I am the light of the world. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when they heard this, the Pharisees got together with all the religious leaders and they put Jesus to death. And to that, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And so the question for us today is the same one for Moses. It's one thing to know about God. It's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing altogether to truly know him. And I want to share with you one more time a message that we learn from our Jewish friends in the four layers of hearing. They say you can hear something but not understand, like listening to a foreign language that you don't know. You can hear something and understand, but not be moved, like many of the things that we look on social media for or things that we disagree with. You can hear something and understand and be moved, but it not transform you. And to this, I say, this is the unique danger, spiritually speaking, for Christians. In the same way it was for Moses, it is so easy for us to know about God, but not to truly know him not to be transformed by his word, not to be compelled by the gospel, and not be called to move. And so I plead with you, congregation, consider the ways in which God is calling you to obey, not just to hear, to be transformed, not just to be motivated. Because I'm sure that at the end of this, when Moses has an encounter with God at the burning bush, he was pretty amazed. He marveled. And yet, when the fire died down and the encounter with God, unlike anything we've ever experienced, I'm assuming, eventually it faded. And there came a time in which Moses had to decide, am I going back? 
are, am I going to have one foot go in front of another and walk all the way to Egypt in trust in what God is going to do? And so I want to lay it at your feet, congregation. What is God calling you to do in terms of obedience? In terms of not just knowing him and knowing about him, but truly, genuinely knowing him. And here's the good news. God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. He knit you together in his mother's womb. And God will never use you the way that you and I are often tempted to use him, just for his gifts and his abilities, his strength. No, he, he wants you just for you. He loves you wholeheartedly before you've done anything at all. And so he says, will you come in? Will you follow me? Will you obey my word even when you disagree? And to that I will give you life. Congregation, let's do it. Let's do it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible gift of your Holy Spirit. We also thank you for these famous words in Exodus chapter 3, in which Moses has this magnificent encounter with your presence at the burning bush. And Lord, even though many of us, most of us, all of us, have not had an experience quite like this one, we trust by the power of your Holy Spirit that you are doing a good work in us and that you are molding us and shaping us and fashioning us into the likeness of your Son. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to consider and even to repent of the ways in which we have heard your word, we have understand, we've understood your word, we've been motivated by your word, but we haven't been transformed. We have not been compelled to move. We have not obeyed. We have not moved forward in faith. And so we ask, Lord, that you would prick our consciences, that you would make us uncomfortable in the right ways to move forward in faith that we would follow your leading and your guiding as we do it. By your Holy Spirit, help us to do just that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.